Hi there, Kevin here, and welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Well, in 1943, World War II was in its third year, and the tide was finally slowly beginning to turn against the Axis powers. That spring, the Royal Air Force embarked on one of the boldest, most ambitious bombing campaigns in aviation history in an effort to deal a crippling blow to the Nazi war machine in the heart of Germany. Today, renowned historian Sir Max Hastings joins me to discuss his latest book, Operation Chastise, the RAF's most brilliant attack of World War II, on the plan to use specifically designed bombs to break open several hydroelectric dams and flood the Ruhr Valley. Sir Hastings has had a long career in journalism as a foreign correspondent for the BBC and as an editor and editor-in-chief for the Evening Standard and Daily Telegraph. Sir Hastings was kind enough to join me from the UK via Skype to discuss the logistics of implementing such an audacious plan as Operation Chastise, the engineering that went into creating the so-called upkeep device, which was capable of breaching a massive structure like a dam, and the brave pilots who flew at dangerously low altitudes to complete this famous mission. A small note for listeners, during our interview we did experience a small issue with our connection in the very beginning. So after I asked Mr. Hastings to tell us a little bit about himself, we missed about 20 seconds of the beginning of his response. So you will notice a brief gap in the audio before Mr. Hastings resumes talking about his life and career. I do apologize for this technical issue. Now on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Max Hastings, welcome to the program. Hi, Kevin. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. To win medals and to find it all a great adventure. So I grew up in being told by everybody what a great, wonderful adventure it was and what bad luck it was to miss it. Although my mother always used to say, don't listen to a word. The war was terrible. It was misery and privation and separations and so on. Anyway, I would say that I grew up fascinated by the war and surrounded by um, all the remains of the war that are around Britain, which had been a giant aircraft carrier all through the war. But I, I grew up surrounded by all the barbed wire and the old bunkers and the airfields and um, the old aircraft and the tanks and the guns. Um, but I've really spent the rest of my working life discovering for myself that war is not a bundle of laughs, war is not an adventure story, but yes, it causes some people to do wonderful things, but it also causes some people to do unspeakably terrible things. And I guess I started out when I was young, uh, briefly with the British Parachute Regiment, and then um, I started being a journalist and a foreign correspondent, and I went to a lot of wars as a correspondent, and I say, there I learned a lot about just how ghastly they are, uh, especially in Vietnam uh, in the early 70s and uh, the Middle East and uh, a few other places. And uh, then I started writing books about it and traveling all over the world interviewing veterans, a lot in the United States and in China and Japan and Germany. And because I found that people were willing to buy the books uh, that I wrote about this, I guess we all end up um, doing stuff that uh, people seem to like because that's a way to make a living. So I guess that I've just gone on writing about wars and uh, um, every now and again, uh, my mother once said to me, why don't you write about something else? Why don't you write about the 18th century? And I said, because, dear mother, I have to make my living out of this, and I'm afraid if I wrote about the 18th century, I'd sell six copies instead of being on the bestseller list. Anyway, uh, I guess I've now written 27 books, and what I'm now trying to do, having written huge books about the sort of big picture of First World War, Second World War, and Vietnam, I'm now focusing on some specific episodes that fascinate me because I don't want to do the, the big picture stuff anymore. I've done too many. And so that's what's caused me to write the book that's just being published in the States, um, Operation Chastise, about this absolutely amazing RAF bombing raid in May 1943. And uh, I'm, I'm now, when I've finished promoting that, I'm 
I'm in the middle of writing a book about the Royal Navy and the Mediterranean in World War II. But I think I'm probably going to go to my grave writing books about this sort of stuff, and I'm thrilled that people in the United States, as well as Europe, uh, um, seem happy to read it. When I was in uh, graduate school, my um, advisor uh, said at some point there had been something like 70,000 books on World War II written, and it seems like there's endless stories that, that historians can dive into. I think this is true. There are two things, to me, very important. I grew up in a household, um, as I say, which, which made the war sound like an adventure story. And my father, uh, like a lot of fathers in the United States, all the way around, but my father, being British, he grew up sincerely believing the British had won the war with the Americans providing the chewing gum and the Americans out there, do, uh, the um, Russians out there doing heaven knows what. And um, one of the good things... I I think about my generation of historians is that we are not remotely so nationalistic, both Americans, British, uh, whatever nationality. We try and see this on a, in a global pattern. And, and the British, we know perfectly well that it was overwhelmingly the Americans and the Russians who won the Second World War. And we, relatively, Churchill and the British people did pretty well to survive in 1940-41. But if the United States and Russia hadn't come into the war, that it will still be going on. Uh, the British alone could never have defeated Hitler. My generation understands that. And also, um, beyond trying to look at this more in a global perspective, one's always trying to think, what can I tell people that, that they won't know already? And I try and do that with all my books. And in the case of this Operation Chastise, I grew up uh, as a kid. I'm, when I was about nine or ten, I read a book that was written about this operation, which an RAF squadron attacked the dams of the Ruhr and broke two huge dams, provoked a biblical torrent uh, in the Ruhr in May 1943, dropping these so-called bouncing bombs devised by this scientific genius named Barnes Wallace. And we grew up thinking, as the British people thought during the war, gee, this was a fantastic achievement by the RAF and by Barnes Wallace, which it was. But on the other hand, there was a whole load of stuff we didn't know. First of all, everybody, one reason everybody was so keen on the breaking of these dams, and, and the American people, that raid got more coverage in the U.S. media in 1943 than almost anything else the British had done in the war. Uh, so the American people were then as impressed as the British, and they saw all these aerial photographs of these huge floods right across the Ruhr uh, where these dams had been broken. But we thought in those days it was sort of cleaner than the raids on cities, which had burnt all those um, thousands of people, and many women and children. And, of course, what we didn't know then was that um, something like 1,400, not only Germans, but um, slave laborers, um, Russian and Polish women, had died in this flood, that this had been a vast tragedy in which about 1,400 civilians had been drowned. And this wasn't victimless. This was a ghastly business. And the great irony of this raid was that the young men who carried it out and lost almost half their number doing it, uh, yes, they were fantastically brave, and I think it's still right to admire what they did. But on the other hand, the great irony was the raid had very little effect on German industry, and it was really this 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 dreadful shambles that it created in the Ruhr and this huge inundation that was the, uh, the main result. And the Germans themselves, the Nazis, uh, the morning after the raid, that Hitler's armaments chief, uh, Speer, Albert Speer, he woke up absolutely horrified to hear the news of this raid um, and the breaking of these dams. And he thought this was going to be a disaster for German industry. But then he found that it was amazing how little difference it made, that, um, that once the flood subsided, the initial flood, it didn't make much odds. So there was a story to tell of terrific courage and scientific ingenuity, but also of what was happening on the other side, that when I was a kid and all my generation were kids, we were never told. So I, I was sure that there was a story to be told. The other thing, too, as I get older, I find I'm more and more moved by these very young men who did this stuff. A lot of them were 19, 20, 21, 22, uh, whether with the US Air Force or with the Royal Air Force. And we these days, comedians 
make mockery of uh, kids who talk about duty or uh, kids who talk about, about, yeah, about God. But to those kids in those days, the idea of duty and the idea of God, um, from the letters that I've read of some of those young men of 617 Squadron, the RAF, who carried out the raid, the Dambusters Squadron, that both duty and God meant a lot to them. And when they took off for that raid uh, um, on this evening in May 1943, on an early summer evening in Lincolnshire in England, um, they knew that there was a pretty good chance they wouldn't be coming back. But in that generation, they had such an enormously powerful sense of what they owed to their country and uh, what they owed to their duty that they went out and did it. And um, and I got more and more fascinated by studying uh, the sort of young men who did these things, British and American, um, but God knows I've met uh, plenty of Americans, uh, especially when I was researching my Vietnam book, who did quite extraordinary things in the same way, and trying to understand how they felt in those days. It doesn't matter so much what we think now. It's trying to explain to a new generation what sort of kids they were. I mean, one thing that made a great impression on me, a lot of the young men of 617 Squadron who attacked the dams, they weren't writing letters because that was very much a letter-writing era. You didn't have much access to telephones, there, even in Britain. And they weren't writing letters to um, wives or to lovers because they didn't have any. They were writing letters to dear mummy, dear mother. And that too, to me, is very moving, that to realize just how fantastically young they were. And so many of them, 144, sorry, 133 young men took off for the dams uh, to carry out that raid. By the end of the war, by May 1945, just 32 were still alive. All the rest had been killed uh, over Germany, if not on the dams raid, on other raids later. And that accident rate among bomber crews, which the USAF crews of the 8th Air Force, um, um, they took the same sort of terrible terrible losses a bit later in the war. Um, but you, it just I find that even after all the years that I've been writing about war, I'm still enormously moved by their stories and their sacrifices. Well, I think you took a very um, holistic approach to this, looking at not just the command structure um, and those in charge of making these decisions, but also the the pilots who you, you mentioned are were very young and had barely even started their lives yet. Also looking at the enemy on the other side and, and the people who lived beneath these dams who experienced um, the aftermath of the breaking of the dams. They saw the people that were on the other side, the Germans, that the eyewitness accounts of survivors and the stuff they saw when this um, hundreds of million tons of water, hundreds of millions of tons of water swept down the valley below the Mona Dam um, after the breaking of the dam. And the survivors, they saw fantastic, terrifying sights, um, whole houses, whole wooden houses being swept by, some with candles still in the window, some with people still praying in the windows. and. One of the first places the flood reached was this camp uh, a few miles below the dam where there were 700 um, Polish and Russian slave laborers, all women, and they were behind barbed wire and they had no means of escape. And German eyewitnesses recounted afterwards how they saw the huts of these women being swept by um, on, the, on this huge tidal wave with the women still screaming inside it before they drowned. Um, these are terrible stories. There are stories of, um, of thousands of cattle and sheep um, and, and horses that drowned um, beside all the um, thousands of people. That it was people saw spectacles that night that nobody should have to see. Now this is the nature of war, and if you if you don't want to be sentimental, you can say, well, the Germans started this. And these Germans who were drowned, they put Hitler in power, and um, they um, started the whole process that um, had inflicted untold misery upon Europe. But I don't know, I find more and more, I'm not so much interested in the um, which division went this way in, in terms of writing about armies and so on. I'm interested in writing about human experience, about what happens to people of all kinds. Um, 
and you're interested in what makes the commanders, the people at the top, uh, uh, think of doing this stuff and um, what they felt when they find it hadn't worked as well as, the, as, well as they'd hoped. Um, and also, of course, what the young men thought. I mean, the guy who led the squadron, uh, 617 squadron, to attack the dams was one of the most remarkable pilots of the war. He was a tragic figure. Um, he was only 24 years old at the time of the dams raid. And he was, when he was killed, he was only a couple of years older, 26. But he, he, his whole adult life had been devoted to bombing Germany. He was a very driven young man. Um, he'd been born in India. And um, his mother had left his much older father when he was about five and brought him back to England to go to boarding school. And back in England, his mother became an alcoholic. And when he was still a kid at school, his mother served a prison sentence uh, for uh, drunken driving. And on Christmas Eve 1939, when Guy Gibson was uh, already a RAF bomber pilot, that he heard that uh, his mother, um, while drunk, um, had her dress had caught an electric fire in her apartment. And she burnt to death, a horrible, horrible way to die. She took many hours to die. And if you've got those sort of demons in your own background, it's not too surprising you're a pretty driven guy. And I, I was very interested. I grew up at school because I'd seen the movie of the Dambusters. As maybe quite a lot of your listeners will have seen the black and white movie, one of the great British war movies, that um, you don't, um, you don't realize uh, that somebody like uh, Guy Gibson, I, I always assumed all these men adored him, but actually back in the 1970s when I interviewed a lot of RAF veterans, that I, I got the shock of my life when one, one of the veterans I was interviewing had served under Gibson, I said, what do you think of him? And I was still a young man about your age then, and uh, he said, I hated him. Uh, he said he was a sort of little blankety blank who was always jumping out from behind a hut and telling me your, your buttons were undone. And the other thing, too, about heroes, which I've found to be true everywhere, is that men who've got to go into battle, they want to be led by leaders who will do the business, but they're pretty scared of people, heroes, people who want to win the Medal of Honor or the Victoria Cross, because they feel that these people don't seem to care if they live or die. And most of the men they're leading, they do want to live, and they do want to come back. And they feel, well, it's all right for him if he wants to win a medal, but what about us? And I've met many, many American soldiers and British soldiers and American airmen and British airmen who've been very wary of finding that they've got a hero as a commander because of what it might mean for them. And with Gibson, I've often thought Gibson flew round the, up the dams um, three times being shot at round the Mona Dam after he dropped his own bomb, which didn't break the dam. He then flew at 60 feet, 60 feet above the deck, um, alongside the next two planes that made their attacks, being shot at by the flat gunners on the, on the downs. Uh, and one of his, his best pilot, uh, who followed him in the attack, uh, was shot down by the flat gunners, and his plane hit the ground and blew up. Um, and I've often thought the crew of Gibson's plane, they would have been less than human if they hadn't felt, well, it's all right for him to go around this target 60 feet up three times. But what about us? I should think there was a good deal of um, silent, um, pretty four-letter language being used in that plane by some of those guys, thinking, why do we have to be with this lunatic? And of course, afterwards, when he'd won the Victoria Cross and it had all been a success and um, they'd all won their medals, then people forget about that. But when I'm writing my books, I'm trying to imagine what it was like when you find that you're into this suicidal mission um, with a guy who's determined to be a hero and doesn't mind if he lives or dies. And this tends to make people pretty unhappy. You, you do a good job of, of piercing through the, the hero worship and, and showing the very human element of what people thought and their, their real fears in the moment. You mentioned um, a while ago you, you like to address that, that question of, of why. Um, so what what prompted this as being an idea for the RAF commanders, the idea that we should uh, attack uh, these series of dams in the Ruhr Valley? As far back as 1938, the leaders of the RAF 
had figured out that dams had to be a vulnerable part of the German war effort uh, because you can't make steel, you can't run coal mines, you can't run electricity generators and everything without water, a lot of water. And most of the water for rural industry came from, uh, from the, uh, the Mona Dam and another dam about 10 miles away, the Sorpi Dam. And very early on, they figured out that if they could break these dams, then this was going to be a devastating blow to German industry. And it was going to be far more effective than bombing cities, because at that stage, although the RAF had adopted area bombing, so-called bombing whole urban areas, uh, that although they'd set fire to a lot of houses and killed quite a lot of civilians, that their impact upon German war production had been very slight. So the chiefs of the area were very excited by the idea of hitting a precision target uh, of a kind that the United States Air Force all along had been debated to. But there was one problem. Dams are huge structures. And they figured out that um, it would be great to destroy the dams, but as soon as somebody did the mathematics, they said in order to have any hope of wrecking one of these vast dams, you'd have to drop a bomb that weighed at least 10 tons. And at that point, uh, neither the RAF nor indeed any air force in the world had an aircraft that could drop a 10-ton bomb. So that was a non-starter. But then two things happened in 1942. First of all, um, the RAF introduced uh, a new terrific four-engine bomber, the, the, the Avro Lancaster, uh, best night bomber of the war, fantastic aircraft, uh, which could carry three or four tons. And secondly, scientists worked out that if you can drop a bomb immediately alongside the dam wall, which obviously required incredible precision, uh, then a much smaller explosive charge could break the dam because when it went, when the charge went off, that the water was going to, um, instead of um, um, dispersing the power of the explosion, it was actually going to redouble, concentrate the power of the explosion against the dam wall. It was almost going to sort of echo the bang against the dam wall. That's a bad phrase, but that's more or less, it was anyway, a, a charge of, they reckoned, about three and a half tons um, had a good chance of breaking the Mona Dam. And then into the story comes uh, this brilliant eccentric scientist, lovely man, whom I had the pleasure of meeting. In fact, I, when I was um, a young researcher in the 1970s, I met most of the people who were involved in all this. And I met this guy, Barnes Wallace, who was a terrific scientist. And he decided that the best way to achieve this amazing feat of uh, putting a bomb right up against the dam wall, um, because you had torpedo nets in front of the dam walls designed to stop anybody using torpedoes against it. So he thought the way to do it was to drop a bomb at low level and bounce that bomb um, up across the surface, boing, 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 until it hit the dam wall and sunk, and then hydrostatic pistols blew the charge. And he So it's like skipping a stone. Exactly, exactly so. And in fact, um, his daughter gave moving evidence about how her father was an absolute ace when he took them on holidays on the um, um, on the beaches of the south of England. Uh, he was brilliant at skipping stones across the water. So he started all these experiments, and he persuaded the chief of the RAF, um, uh, Sir Charles Portal, uh, that this was a, this idea was a goer. And Portal uh, committed a squadron. Uh, he ordered uh, the head of bomber command, the British bomber command, uh, Sir Arthur Harris, who was rather a monster, but um, although an able monster, he ordered Harris uh, to form a new squadron to carry out this attack. Well, initially, they were talking about dropping these bouncing bombs, which had the code name Upkeep. They always used to give things code names that wouldn't give any clue about what they were afterwards. So the idea was to drop these upkeeps from about 200 feet and um, bounce them along the wall, wall of the dam. Now, 200 feet is low, but it's not very, very low. Um, so the squadron is formed under Guy Gibson, and it starts training to carry out this attack at uh, at 200 feet. But as they carry on carry on the tests of these bombs, they find that if you drop them from 200 feet, they shatter on impact with the water. And so Barnes Wallace had to send for uh, for Guy Gibson, and this 
elderly scientist tells this very young airman, he says, look, he says, we think this is a great idea. We think we can break the dams of Germany. But this is only going to work if your crews can drop their bombs or depth charges, whatever you want to call them, from a height of 60 feet. I mean, 60 feet is fantastically low, 20 yards, um, that um, you've only got to blink and you hit the water. Anyway, Gibson says his guys can do it, uh, and they start testing this, and they find, yes, these bombs, uh, they are going to work. But at this point, some spoil sports uh, in one of the government departments uh, who've been studying the German economy, they say, hang on a minute. Uh, do remember, breaking the Mona Dam is going to hurt the Germans, but it won't hurt them really badly unless you can also break the Sorpi Dam. Now, the trouble is that whereas the Mona Dam was a concrete dam, the Sorpi was an earthen dam. It was a huge, thick earthen dam. And Barnes Wallace, it had a sloping face so that if you bounced a bomb towards it, the bomb would just roll away um, down the hill when it reached the dam. And Barnes Wallace admitted before the raid that his chances with his bombs of breaking the Sorpi were not very great. But by this stage, everybody was committed. The squadron had been formed. Terrific effort had been put into modifying Lancasters to carry these, um, these bombs. Um, everybody was all teed up. So they decided to go ahead, even though they knew the chances of breaking the Sorpi weren't too great. And this is the way things often happen in wars, that once things develop a certain momentum, you keep going. Well, on this May evening, the crews take off for Germany, um, and they have to fly all the way, because no other aircraft were operating that night, because it was moonlight, because everybody figured the only way this whole thing had a chance of working was with moonlight. So no other British bombers are flying. Only way they can get to Germany, avoid the fighters, uh, is if they stay below German radar. So they fly all the way. And the saga of their flying all that way across the across uh, to Germany, um, that's a an epic in its own right. I mean, first of all, one of the planes flying across the North Sea, just for a second, the pilot misjudged his sight. Um, and Mike, he terrifies his crew. He hit the water. And miraculously, the plane survived. Um, the crew absolutely petrified, um, but the bomb has been torn off the bottom of the aircraft, so he has to turn around and go home. And then after that, um, although they were too low for German fighters to engage them, there was a mass of light flak, light anti-aircraft guns all the way to Germany, and these were potting these aircraft all the way. Two planes uh, flew straight into par lines, into overhead par lines, and crashed, everybody killed. Um, another plane uh, on the way got hopelessly lost, eventually had to turn around and come back without bombing. Another plane was hit, all its communications knocked out, so it had to come back. So eventually, um, Gibson, who had set out for the Mona Dam, leading a formation of nine aircraft, eight aircraft got to the Mona miraculously. And they then dropped these bombs, and extraordinary business. I mean, the, Gibson himself, he does it perfectly at 60 feet. Maybe they dropped their bomb just a little bit early, but anyway, his bomb explodes, fails to break the dam. Second aircraft, his best pilot, 21-year-old, Hoppy Hopgood, lovely, lovely young man, very religious, very serious-minded. Um, as he's making his approach, German flak on the dam, on the dams hit him, uh, and uh, his bomb explodes on the dam face, and uh, he climbs away, and then plane breaks up and he crashes into the ground. Um, next aircraft also hit as it's making its attack 60 feet up each one of these. Um, and uh, this aircraft also, although it was flown by a brilliant Australian um, who did everything right, but the fact that his plane was hit at just the moment he released the bomb, this bomb too landed wide. Fourth bomb, fantastic, absolute accuracy, dropped bang in the middle of the dam, sank. Um, and at first, after it was dropped, they didn't think the dam had broken. So a fifth aircraft made its attack and dropped. But just as the fifth bomb was exploding, the Mona Dam crumbled and collapsed. The fourth of the upkeeps had broken the dam. And they, this sudden, they, they, there they are in the moonlight, they can see cars down below um, racing ahead of the uh, ahead of the flood, which of course overtakes them, and the headlights disappearing under the water. Uh, they see trees being torn up in in stroves. They see this great flood pouring down the Mona Valley, and then 
they go on, the three aircraft that have still got um, um, upkeeps aboard go on uh, to attack the Ada Dam, which is uh, 40 something miles away, um, and they also break the Ada Dam. Um, another pilot uh, crew killed uh, as they are um, after they get uh, uh, they're badly damaged attacking the dam. Um, another pilot, uh, the one who broke the dam, uh, the Mona Dam, uh, was uh, shot down and killed on his way home. Um, so in the end, 19 aircraft had taken off from Britain. Um, that eight of them were lost. Um, so 11 eventually got back. Um, they failed to break the Sorpi Dam. I should say that an incredibly gallant attack was made on the Sorpi Dam by the one American pilot in the squadron, um, a wonderful man called Joe McCarthy, who'd been a, a Coney Island, uh, um, um, I don't know whether you call him beach bum or lifesaver, but anyway, he'd... Uh, um, he was obviously a lovely man. He became one of the great pilots of the war. And he'd, uh, because they wouldn't have him in the United States Air Force because he hadn't passed high school, graduated from high school, he went off and joined the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, anyway, he was flying the 617 Squadron. He made 10 runs over the Salpy Dam. 10 runs. Every minute, of course, they, the crew terrified that German night fighters were going to turn up. Um, before they were satisfied, they dropped. They got it in the right place. They dropped their bomb. It lands absolutely accurately alongside the Sorpy. But as the experts had always feared, it didn't break the dam. And one more aircraft also attacked the Sorpy, also accurately, but didn't break the dam. And then the survivors went home. Um, and of course, they were unbelievably shocked at a scale of losses to lose almost half your number, even by the standards of bomber command. I mean, in those days, only one crew in three in the RAF's bomber command was completing a tour of 30 operations. But to lose nearly half your strength in a single night, they were pretty shattered. But of course, they were very young, and they were thrilled about their success, and they celebrated like crazy, and uh, um, they um, uh, they became national heroes in Britain. And Guy Gibson went on a great tour of America, because um, he'd become very famous in America too and uh, the United States gave him a wonderful reception and he had the time of his young life uh, before he came back to England to go on being a bomber pilot. But in Germany of course this dreadful, dreadful tragedy was unfolding which killed all these people but in the end it wasn't a matter when the dust settled but when the floodwaters receded they found hadn't made that impact uh, that they'd hoped on German industry. But it became, it was a great morale booster to the British. At that point of the war, May 1943, the British people felt pretty low that they didn't seem to have had many successes since the British Army had been thrown out of uh, the continent at the time of Dunkirk three years earlier. And the United States and the Russians increasingly dominated uh, the story of the war. And so the British people who had suffered so much themselves from German bombing, from rationing, from all these family separations, from innumerable uh, defeats on the battlefield. It was a huge, huge morale booster for the British uh, to feel that um, there they were um, suddenly having done something that the world admired enormously and which actually frightened the who are out of the German high command. I mean, uh, Dr. Goebbels wrote in his diary um, that uh, this was a terrifying business because um, they thought, my God, if the RAF are capable of pulling off a stunt like this, then what may not they be able to do? Uh, so it was a huge morale boost, and it really, really made the British people feel better about themselves. It was this marriage of courage and ingenuity um, and technical brilliance uh, that amazed everybody. I mean, one thing I had mentioned earlier that um, in addition to having to drop these bombs so low, they were back spun. They were cylinders. They were cylindrical in shape, not like ordinary bombs. Um, and these cylinders, three and a half ton cylinders, um, in order to, to bounce properly, they had to be back spun. So underneath each aircraft, not only had you got um, the upkeep cylinder hanging down, you'd also got a pulley and hydraulic motor which was backspinning these things for five minutes before the crews dropped them um, at 500 revolutions a minute. So it was a peculiar mixture 
of incredibly imaginative technology and sort of um, um, almost sort of weird um, sort of comic strip stuff. Um, you can hardly believe that you have these crews flying at 60 feet over water over Germany uh, with this uh, enormous cylinder rotating underneath, underneath each aircraft. And it's not too surprising that those crews uh, were very, very scared. Well, I hope you're enjoying learning about Operation Chastise with Sir Max Hastings. I want to take a little break from our conversation to tell you about a website called Things from Another World. Things from Another World is a site that specializes in comics, graphic novels, and all things nerd and geek. If you're into superheroes, movies, Star Wars, Star Trek, they have something for you. They have a collection of thousands of comics that you can pick up for just a dollar. And they just uploaded their March catalog. And if you pre-order or subscribe to any comics or graphic novels, you can save 30% off. They also have all kinds of apparel as well. I just got my shirt in the mail that I ordered. Uh, I was going to go with their Star Wars I Have Spoken shirt, but then I discovered uh, something that truly speaks to my heart. They have a Star Trek collection. And they have blended two of my favorite things, which is Star Trek and craft beer. And so I got a Romulan Ale t-shirt, which I'm pretty excited about. Uh, I ordered from them. It was a very simple process. Uh, They shipped it to me very quickly. And uh, I'm very excited to have this shirt and wearing it around. Uh, And people are noticing it, which is fun. I'll be sure to put up a picture of the shirt on Twitter so you guys can see what it looks like. But anyway, if you're a huge nerd like me... You will enjoy things from another world, and if you want to check them out, look down in the description of your podcast app where I've provided a link for you to head over to their site. And before we resume my conversation with Max Hastings over Operation Chastise, I wanted to tell you about another podcast that you may enjoy. The Can't Make This Up History Podcast is a proud member of the Straight Up Strange Podcast Network, And one of our fellow shows is called Booze and Spirits, where the hosts, Bailey and Vanessa, uh, share strange tales, legends, and ghost stories. But they do so while enjoying some supernatural-themed cocktails. So if you enjoy monsters and legends as well as a good drink, listen to this promo, check out their podcast. And then on the other side, we'll get back into my conversation with Max Hastings. Hey, did you know that in the original Bloody Mary ritual, you had to walk backwards up a flight of stairs? Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the purpose was to catch a glimpse of your future husband's face. Really? I wish I could find my future husband that easily. Honestly, all I really want to do now is drink a Bloody Mary. Well, how about we go make some Bloody Marys while you tell me more fun facts about Bloody Mary? Join us every week at Booze and Spirits, where we make our favorite drinks and tell each other our favorite paranormal stories. Find us under Booze and Spirits on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and Podbean. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Booze and Spirits. And it's not too surprising that those crews uh, were very, very scared. The technological and the the engineering problem-solving that went into this was just fascinating to read about. The the way they... um, you know, took advantage of the of the physics of how to get something to to drop from an airplane and skip over the surface of the water to get it exactly where they needed it to go was um, just astounding. It was a one of the things about the Second World War that fascinates me, and again, where I always try and get away from the jingo bit. Um, I'm afraid I've often argued and sometimes upset some American and British readers. Um, that the German army on the battlefield was actually generally in most situations better than uh, the American army or the British army. Um, the, the German army was one of the finest fighting forces the world has ever seen, albeit in a terrible cause. But the sort of um, contradiction of this is the United States and Britain made war in the wider sense far, far better than the Axis did, uh, because partly because the United States and Britain mobilized technology and mobilized its best brains uh, for the war effort in a way that the United States and Japan, not to mention Italy, uh, no, sorry, that Germany and, uh, and Japan, not to mention Italy, never remotely did. That the Germans 
for example, I mean, the, the fact that many of the most brilliant scientists and um, engineers were Jewish, and so um, not only were denied any role in the war effort, but were sent to the death camps, um, that they deprived themselves of much of the scientific genius they might have used. Um, but the British and the Americans were incredibly good at um, identifying people and getting them to, to go and do the things they were best at. In the, um, I mean, to give an example, the Germans, even when they got some of their best, ma best mathematicians as code breakers, they took some of these professors out of German universities, but they insisted that before they could do code breaking, they had to join the German army, and they became corporals. And many of them did not like uh, being asked to work all day, um, dressed up as corporals, uh, and, and being bossed around by rather stupid officers. Um, when they were professors of, of some of the most distinguished mathematicians in Germany. By contrast, the British and the Americans uh, at Arlington Hall and at Bletchley Park, um, they said, sure, there were plenty of people in uniform doing stuff, but the code breakers, nobody cared what they were wearing. They could turn up in blue jeans if they could do the business. And they were allowed to be as eccentric as, uh, as you like if they could just do the business. And the British and the Americans um, knew, learned how to exploit and how to make the absolute most of scientific and, uh, and technological genius um, in a way that uh, the other side never did. Um, and so we, the, the use of people to make war, I mean a lot of the people, the Germans and the Japanese would never let anybody near the actual summit of the war who wasn't a, a, a career officer and so on. But I mean um, the joint intelligence staffs uh, in both um, Britain and the United States, almost all of them were just very clever. Brits or Americans, uh, most, a lot of them academics, dressed up in uniforms. Uh, and they were put in uniform and uh, they were given ranks, colonel or brigadier general, whatever you like. Um, but nobody cared whether they'd been to West Point. And this is terribly important. You, you just have to, you have to let genius flourish in war as in peace. Um, we were much better at it, thank goodness for mankind. Now, you uh, mentioned that the the outcome of Operation Chastise um, ultimately um, didn't yield much strategic value to the um, to the war effort um, as far as attacking German industry. But what about the upkeep device itself? Did, did it have any uh, military value beyond Operation Chastise? Now, upkeep, and one of the things that the chiefs of the RAF realized from day one is that upkeep could only be used once that once the Germans um, saw the technology and one upkeep did, when one of the aircraft that crashed in Germany, uh, the Germans captured uh, its upkeep device intact. So they very quickly understood what the technology was. And so within a couple of days of uh, the Mona and the Ada dams being broken, that the Germans had put barrage balloons and flat guns and uh, uh, all sorts of protective devices on every dam in Germany. Now, of course, this meant a distraction of resources. Although, funnily enough, it happened to the British too, because Churchill was nervous that the Luftwaffe might try and pull the same stunt with Britain. So he also got the British to put flat guns and barrage balloons and so on uh, on all their dams. Um, but um, upkeep was obviously going to be a one-trick pony, that uh, this was something you could only use once. Barnes Wallace had dreams of it being used against German warships. But the problem there, German warships naturally were very heavily defended. And you would not have wanted to be um, an RAF pilot who had to um, attack, let's say, the battleship Tirpitz at a height of 60 feet um, against the sort of um, flak that they would have met there. It would have been literally, if, if, if the dam's raid was almost suicidal, then that would have been completely suicidal. Um, I remember asking um, Barnes Wallace, one of the things he told me when I interviewed him back in about 1978, he said um, that one of the big mistakes, uh, the, 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 because the head of the RAF Bomber Command, um, so-called Bomber Harris, Sir Arthur Harris, hated the whole dams business and was always against it, that he wouldn't send any bombers to attack uh, the dam repairs, which actually could have been uh, a big deal uh, because you wouldn't have had to attack the, all this cat's cradle of scaffolding on the dams for months after the thing. You wouldn't have had to attack them with upkeeps. You could have attacked them with conventional bombs and they would have fallen down. But um, about three weeks after I'd interviewed Barnes Wallace, 
I interviewed Strata Harris, who was then very much alive. Um, I spent three hours talking to him, and I asked him why he hadn't attacked the, uh, the dam repairs. And he said, any operation of war deserving of a Victoria Cross is by its nature unfit to be repeated. Uh, now, at the time, because I was young and green, I took that on the chin. But actually, uh, of course, this was nonsense, that you could have launched a relatively high-level, uh, high-altitude attack on the dam's repairs and done a lot of damage. Uh, but Harris didn't want to know about it. And also, thanks to the Bletchley Park codebreakers, they had decrypted a lot of the German intelligence signals. And I described all this in the book, that the chiefs of staff, the British chiefs of staff, were pretty depressed when they read the German signals about the effects of the damage raid. And they realized that actually it hadn't had that much effect after the first few days on um, German industry. They rather lost interest in the whole business. Um, and in that sense, I, I think one reason that Sir Charles Portal, the head of the RAF, didn't press for a, more raids on the dam repairs, he felt, well, all right, we've got terrific publicity all over the world out of this amazing um, um, coup and this extraordinary achievement. But obviously, we haven't done that much harm, so we better go back to bombing cities. Um, go back to bombing cities is what they did. And uh, the rest of the story is history, so to speak. But, um, most of the rest of the war, uh, the Royal Air Force were bombing cities, and uh, and so too, although they wouldn't admit it, was the USAF, because the USAF was committed to the doctrine of precision bombing. But because uh, so much of the time, uh, the weather over Europe uh, wouldn't allow precision bombing, so you couldn't see the target, uh, right to the end of the war, the USAF, although it professed to be doing precision bombing, was do a ter doing a terrific amount of pretty much the same thing as the RAF were doing, uh, radar bombing of urban areas. Uh, and so, um, although uh, the leaders of the USAF, right to the end of the war, always said, um, we would never allow um, uh, American bombers to be used against civilians, the Germans underneath couldn't really tell the difference between what it was like being attacked by the USAF 8th Air Force and what it was like being attacked by the RAF's bomber command. So we are going to be observing was 77th anniversary of this operation uh, this year. What has been the legacy of this operation over the last seven decades? Despite the fact that Operation Chastise didn't have the effect on German industry that everybody hoped, it's been incredibly inspirational because of um, the books that have been written and especially the great British black and white movie um, that was made back in 1955. Um, and the British people, everybody, especially in my generation, uh, uh, which grew up with this whole story, uh, but actually younger generations too, because just about everybody, I, I should think most of your readers sometime, maybe late night, um, have seen the Dan Busters movie. And it has been inspirational because the sight of these very young men on this charming, um, elderly, pretty eccentric um, um, scientist, uh, again profoundly Christian. Um, he rang. The, he was a bell ringer in his local village church. Um, he was a vegetarian. Um, he was passionately uh, committed to the whole uh, to the whole Christian ethic. And some people would say, "Well, now if you're passionately committed to Christian ethic, how could you have devoted so much of your energy during the Second World War to producing bombs to kill people?" But uh, in wars, um, serving your country is what matters, and Barnes Wallace was a great servant of his country. And I always remember the experience of meeting Barnes Wallace as one of the most remarkable of my career as a researcher of the Second World War. And actually also, the RAF, back in 1978, they took me up in their one surviving Lancaster bomber. And I probably burst into tears from the moment of, uh, of taking off to the moment of landing again, because it was so moving. And although I'm very tall, and so I had a hell of a struggle to get into the rear turret, gun turret, of the Lancaster, um, we were in the air uh, with the surviving um, Hurricane and Spitfire fighters, and they got the Spitfire and Hurricanes to do passes around me to show me what it looked like to have a fighter attacking if you were a gunner in the rear turret. And I sat in all the crew oh, wow. positions, and I still found um, it was one of, it was so moving. And um, I really do believe the legacy 
um, one, I think, even though, yes, part of the legacy must be, if you have any humanity at all, caring about all those people who died, and especially all the Polish and Russian slave laborers, that it always must be right um, to honor um, very young men who did things for their country, whether for the United States uh, uh, or Britain in those days. And I still find that even after all the years I've spent writing about this, I never cease to be moved by what those very young men did and uh, uh, by the way that nobody wants to die, but they were willing to go out and do something and try to do something that they knew was quite likely to getting killed because they believed that was their duty. And I think all of us are right to be proud of people in our respective countries who do that. And of course, the United States and Britain were on the same side in World War II, and many Americans did wonderful and amazing things in the Second World War, and um, they did it in the same spirit, a lot of them, as, as, as their British comrades. So um, there's a great cultural legacy uh, which I still think it's one that it's right to be proud of. All right, well, the title of the book again is Operation Chastise, the RAF's Most Brilliant Attack of World War II. If someone wants to learn more about this and pick up a copy of the book or learn more about you and some of your other work, uh, where can they go? Uh, MaxHastings.com is the website, and I'm very happy to say I, I get lots of American hits on it, and I, I have a lot of correspondence with... Uh, up with American readers, that um, everybody gets a reply. It may not be the reply you want, but I read them all. All right. Well, Sir Max Hastings, thank you so much for coming on the program. Uh, this has been a pleasure. It was my pleasure too, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. All the very best. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast, and thank you to Sir Max Hastings for being our guest this week. If you found that this discussion interests you and you want to learn more about this topic and pick up a copy of Max Hastings' book, Operation Chastise, as always, you can find a link to the book down in the description in your podcast app. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, I'll ask you if you did to please leave a review on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Look for the show on Twitter and Instagram, both of which are at CMTU History. I am active on both just about every day, and I would love to hear from you and interact a little bit. I'll be back with another episode of the podcast very soon, where we will be talking about the history of Russian espionage after the fall of the Soviet Union. See you then. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.